Peter Singer is often described as the world's most influential philosopher. The author of important books such as Animal Liberation, Rethinking Life and Death, and The Life You Can Save, he helped launch the animal rights and effective altruism movements. His organization, The Life You Can Save, implements the concepts from his book of the same name to provide a curated set of charities that encourage audiences to donate with the greatest impact to the world's poor. Peter Singer, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. I'm very happy to be part of it. And so we see uh, now just in the news, the action plan for animal uh, welfare has, has just been published in the UK. What are your thoughts on this? Does it go far enough? What are its implications for how we treat animals? I'm, I'm not across on the details. I'm sorry. I have noticed that the UK has come out with that plan, but I've had some other work with deadlines, so I really shouldn't comment on it without having had more time to study it. All right. Yes, I think I don't know it, its details. Well, it, it seems to me like it's an interesting, you know, beginning step, something that you've been on this path for a, a long time. I would say maybe it doesn't deal with it enough. But if, if it's about changing people's minds slowly, I think that anything is, is helpful. You know, yeah. it's really been it's really been your your life's work, though. I think that it's with, without a doubt that your books and your projects have really helped people changed their life. What started you on this journey as a, a moral philosopher? Oh, well, I guess the first question was why I decided to do philosophy. And that was not my original intention when I went to university. I intended to study law and become a lawyer. But I did do some philosophy in my undergraduate uh, degree, and I got interested in it. And I seemed to do it quite well, and I got offered a scholarship to go on and do graduate work in philosophy, and then another scholarship to go to Oxford to study there, which was very attractive to a young Australian to to go to England and be really what seemed to be the centre of the philosophical world at the time. So I seized those opportunities. I suppose I still thought maybe I will end up being a lawyer. Jobs in philosophy were quite uncertain, but I ended up having a career there. So that was the first necessary part of the journey that took me where I am. But the second part specifically relating to my work regarding animals was the outcome of a quite accidental meeting with a Canadian graduate student at Oxford and a conversation that happened to be taking place after a class before lunchtime. And the student, Richard Keshen, invited me to come and join him for lunch in his Oxford College, in Balliol College. So we went to lunch there. And at that time, for lunch, you were offered a choice of either a hot dish or a salad plate. And the hot dish that day was spaghetti with a sauce on top of it. And, and Richard asked if the sauce had meat in it. And when he was told that it did, um, he took the salad plate. So I took the, the spaghetti and um, sat down next to him. We continued our conversation. But uh, after a time when we'd more or less dealt with that topic, I asked him why he asked that question about meat, what his problem with meat was, because this is 1970. And you really hardly ever met a vegetarian at that time. They were very rare. Maybe an Indian might be a vegetarian because of the Hindu background or perhaps somebody who was a pacifist against all killing, whether in war or of animals, might be a vegetarian. 
but neither of those positions were really going to be persuasive for me. But but Richard said something much simpler, which is, I don't think that it's right to treat animals the way the animal on your plate was was treated when it was alive. And this stopped me and made me think because I'm certainly against cruelty. Uh, I was already then. I was against making animals suffer. But I hadn't really thought about their lives as being full of suffering. I thought of their lives as being good lives until, of course, they got killed. But when I queried Richard about that, he said, no, increasingly they've been taken off the fields and they're crowded inside big sheds. And essentially whatever makes it more profitable to rear them will be done to them. And and their welfare barely counts. So he then he mentioned a book by Ruth Harrison called Animal Machines, which was the only book on the subject of factory farming then. And I got hold of that and I talked more to Richard and to a couple of his friends who thought like him. I decided that they were right. It wasn't justifiable to treat animals the way they were being treated to turn them into meat. So that's what led me to change my diet and to over a period of years, I didn't immediately start writing about this, but Gradually, I thought, this is something I need to write about. This is a a really big and important issue involving a huge number of animals. And nobody's really talking about it, or nobody's talking about it as a serious moral issue. People were only talking about it in a rather sentimental way. And most of the concerns about animal welfare at that time were about the welfare of dogs and cats and horses, but not about the welfare of chickens or pigs or cows. Yes, it's so true. And I, opinion has changed. And particularly with you know each generation, you just see uh, a, a growing awareness and, and no doubt in, in no small part due to you. It just goes to speak to the level in which we may say we're almost indoctrinated to desensitize ourselves in the way a soldier might be, you know, from the time we're children. Yeah, absolutely. I think we are. Because very often you read stories of small children who at some point, make the connection between the meat that's on their plate and an animal like the kinds of animals that they may have as as soft toys. You know, they may have a, a lamb or or even a cow or a pig, or they have storybooks about them or about chickens. And at some point, they make the connection that these things that you know they they may cuddle or that they are taught to think of in in positive ways in the storybooks are actually being killed and they're eating them. And and some children do rebel a little bit at that point, but most of them have parents who essentially, as you just said, indoctrinated them into thinking, no, no, you have to eat this if you want to grow up big and strong or, you know, don't worry about them. You know, maybe they tell them that nothing bad happened to them, which is, but so, so I think we do get desensitized from quite an early age. And I think the fact that we're eating animals is a large part of that desensitization. Yes, and I wonder in to what extent, you know, societies or, or groups who are who are vegetarian or vegan, how that just feeds into their greater humanity. As we see violence in our society, I don't know if you can make conclusions, but when it's all right to treat animals that way, then there is by extension, it just, it hardens you. It, it does, yes, I think that's right. I mean, because you become hardened to causing suffering to a sentient being and you know, 
we know that animals do suffer. Most people know that. So I think it is a hardening process. And you know, no doubt when people needed to hunt and kill animals or, or farm and kill animals in order to feed themselves, that was a necessary hardening process if, if you were going to survive. But today it's, it's absolutely unnecessary and, and therefore it's uh, a bad thing, an avoidable bad thing that we do harden ourselves in these ways. And in some cases, it's not, it's even our survival. We would survive better in terms of beyond the suffering of animals, but the suffering, the detriment of our own environments that, you know, if we are thinking in our own self-interest, our own health, you know, the lives of a vegan, a good, you know, low fat vegan diet is better for our health. If we're just to think selfishly, not even altruistically. But the Absolutely. Yes. I think, I think that's increasingly being pointed out now. The, the Lancet ran that series of articles on the, the EAT Commission about meat and individual health in the way you mentioned, and also, of course, the health of our planet and pointed out that really a diet with, with no red meat and with very little, with much less meat altogether was a healthier diet, both individually and for the planet. And so as you, you were just talking about your beginnings and what brought you to philosophy, I think it's very interesting that you thought initially that you might uh, study law because really your writings are very, you're a public intellectual. And so very much uh, what it's, it's not, I think that the way philosophy is taught, particularly in America, in different countries, in Europe, it's more of a part of our education system. But I think that philosophy in many places is taught as this dry uh, academic subject where people feel, oh, how do I apply it to my real life? And that's never been, the focus with your books has always been something that we could think about how do we examine society or even the laws that are made in our name. How would you like to see philosophy taught and more integrated into our education models? Yeah, I would like to see philosophy taught as being essentially about how we ought to live, about what it is to live a good life and why we, why we should lead that kind of life. To me, that's the central questions. It was for Socrates in ancient Athens. And he said, you know, we're talking about how we are to live. And he said, an unexamined life is not worth living. So I think we should think of philosophy as encouraging students, young people to examine their lives and to think about how they want to live. And that can start in school. In fact, in, I think there's been some success in teaching philosophy, even in primary schools. But certainly in secondary schools, there are quite a lot of philosophy being taught now in secondary schools in many countries. And, and at the tertiary level, philosophy should be seen, I think, as really a part of everybody's education. I think it's, it's training in how to think. And I believe that's important. And I think if we'd had more of that, in fact, we might have avoided some of the political problems that uh, we've had lately, you know, I think training people to think critically would help them to evaluate the things that political leaders might say. And that I think would be a very healthy experience. It's, I, I, I know that the, somebody I know called Andy Norman just brought out a book called Mental Immunity with the idea that uh, training in philosophy is like giving a vaccination for your mind. So you don't get all sorts of rubbish um, floating around in it. I love that expression. Well, yeah, I do see some people wandering around who 
haven't been vaccinated in that sense. And it's it's dangerous uh, if we are we want an informed citizenry. So has that can be applied? There's two things. There's uh, there's other movements now, particularly what we see with our uh, current environmental crisis, a climate crisis, that there's movements to having for there being the climate literacy being more integrated into the education model. And I think alongside that, you know, philosophy, you know, these civics courses that help us understand this information and make the best possible decision, as you say, to live the best lives we can live. Mm, Absolutely. I think that's, that's what we should be doing. And you've also, beyond your books, you know, you have these, the, the life you can save, you have these projects that have um, really helped us eg- examine, not just know the best life we can live for ourselves, but the best life, the best we can do in the world and how we can examine, you know, how we give and, and help others in, in, in countries that are, how do you say, in, in poorer countries, how we can help alleviate poverty, how that is a moral issue if we're not doing enough. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is part of the effective altruism movement, which I played some role in starting, but it owes a lot to uh, much younger people like uh, Toby Ord and Will McCaskill at Oxford, who have, have really argued that living altruistically ought to be a part of our life, not the whole of our life. We don't expect people to be saints, but thinking about making the world a better place is should be one of one of our objectives for everybody. And insofar as we do try to make the world a better place, we should use the resources that we can spare for that, whether that's putting time into it or putting our skills into it or donating money. We should use those resources as effectively as possible to get the most amount of good out of them. Just as when we buy consumer goods, we want to get the best value for the money we spend. So we should try to get the best value for what we're doing for the world. And that's I think increasingly recognized. I think this is a, a growing movement that is having an impact on philanthropy around the world. And as you say, in particular, we do get much better value for our money when we donate to people living in extreme poverty in, in low-income countries. And obviously, you don't have to think very long to see that if somebody is earning, let's say, $750 a year, which you know, there are hundreds of millions of people, that's their annual income, they're people in extreme poverty, according to the World Bank, then if you can add $1,000 to their income, you've made a huge difference. Whereas if somebody is earning $20,000 a year, which might still leave them in poverty by the United States, domestic poverty standards, adding $1,000 to their income isn't going to make a life-changing difference in the way that it could for somebody who's earning uh, less than $1,000 for the year. So I think that's that's it's easy to see why if you want to get the best value for your money, you should help people in extreme poverty. And that's what the life you can save, the organization that I founded is encouraging people to do. And it's also recommending the very best nonprofit organizations that people can donate to. So I hope people will will look at that. Go to thelifeyoucansave.org and have a look at what's on the website there. I think the information is very useful. Yeah, well, it's really so important because you do tackle that issue. That's the reservation. That's the the out for a lot of people when they feel, oh, this, my, uh, what I'm giving is going to be eaten up by bureaucracy. There's so so many things that 
give people a, a way out or f- feel that they it won't be effective. So there are many, very many effective organizations. And for you yourself personally, how do you what is what is your metrics uh, of calculation in terms of when you regard all the problems in the world and all the th- issues needing systemic change? You know, how do you choose those few that you'll give prioritize? Because I guess that's the issue. We can't solve them all at mm. once. Yeah, so I think I can prioritize within different causes. So I think, say, within trying to help people in extreme poverty, there are some organizations that are much more effective than the average organization in that field. And and they've been assessed by researchers. There's, for example, there's an organization called GiveWell that does uh, in-depth research into the impact of different interventions and different organizations providing them. And there are other evaluators too and the life you can save draws on the research of those organizations and and finds the very best it's recommending about 20 organizations at present which are doing i think more more good than much more good than the average organization in that field but but the more difficult question is really you know because i am as we were just discussing concerned about the welfare of animals as well as humans and so i think there is a real question about how you compare those two things. Again, within the field of animal charities, you can go to an organization called Animal Charity Evaluators. They have a website and they will recommend the organizations that they think do the most good. They're predominantly organizations that are trying to do something about factory farming. They're, They're not focused on helping dogs and cats because there's already much more money going into helping dogs and cats than there is going into factory farming although the numbers of animals in factory farms is, you know, maybe maybe a, a thousand times greater than the number of animals uh, in need, the number of dogs and cats who are actually in need of, of some help or assistance. So the, the difficult question, I'd say, is not deciding, you know, which is the best organization helping people in poverty and which is the best organization helping animals, but how much do I give to concerns about animals or, you know, take another issue like climate change, perhaps, and how much do I give to helping people in extreme poverty? And those comparisons are very difficult to make. And I, I, I just go on, on hunches there. I divide my, my giving particularly between charities working for animals and charities working for people in extreme poverty. And I, I can't really say, you know, the right distribution here is to give this much to one and this much to the other or all of it to one and none of it to the other. It's just too difficult to compare the, the kinds of goods done by those different fields of, of work. And you identify as well, the issue is that, that I think that our, we like to believe that we, we're altruistic to our, our family. We're altruistic to those in our immediate vicinity where we can see something happening and, and you can't help but have a uh, reaction that's compassionate. But it's one of proximity. If you can't see it out of sight, out of mind, you know, I don't see the animal being slaughtered. It's hard to get a camera in to, to you know, to really see that, you know. So as long as I, it comes to my plate, okay, it doesn't bother me because it's out of sight. So how, how do you combat that? Or how, how could make greater transparency, you know, help us make more informed, altruistic decisions, compassionate decisions? Well, we can get cameras into these places. There are some very brave people who've gone working undercover 
with with hidden cameras and you know you can certainly go to websites like people for the ethical treatment of animals and many other websites that will show you video taken by these brave undercover animal activists but of course people don't want to do that in a way you know they don't they know that they're going to see something unpleasant that they won't like they know also maybe that it's going to disturb you know their their uh, enjoyment of of meat when they eat it if they are still meat eaters so they try and avoid it and the the, the difficult question i think is is how you get people to think about this and to be aware of it and not just to say oh no i don't want to know about that and to ignore it and go on with their life which is actually supporting it obviously people who regularly buy meat are complicit in these practices because that's all the support the meat industry needs is for people to buy their products yes i think that if the if the decisions i feel i think overnight we're not going to have a a world of vegans that's I, I just it won't it won't really happen unless there's just some catastrophe and then it, there's no choice. So I guess it's how could we best go about gradually, you know, I think that you see it particularly among young people or for health related reasons, people are becoming vegan or vegetarian and then more choices become available. So I was you mentioned uh, PETA. So I interviewed we had the good opportunity to interview Ingrid Newkirk and and there we just then she's discussing all these possibilities, the meat alternatives. I feel like when we're given more alternatives, if we could, people could graduate into becoming vegetarians or vegans and not overnight, and then it won't be too difficult. But if we just tell them tomorrow that you have to just stop, I mean, you yourself, your own experience, did you stop immediately? No, I certainly didn't become a vegan immediately. I, and in fact, I didn't even become a vegetarian immediately. I the first thing that I did was to stop buying factory farm products. And then when I got used to that after well, only maybe a week or two or at most a month, I thought, well, I'm not sure how these other animals that are not factory farmed were really treated, but I don't need to eat them. I'm, I was you know, enjoying the other new dishes that I was eating. So I did then become a vegetarian, but the path to being a vegan took many years and you know i'm i'm still not uh, 100% vegan because i'm concerned about the consequences of what i'm eating and if there's you know a small amount of skim milk powder in a product or something like that i'm not really that concerned about about that it's not it's not like a religion for me that i have to avoid all animal products it's a matter of saying am i supporting in any significant way the industries that exploit these animals and if the answer to that is no then I'm not so troubled by it. Yeah, I think that that's the way. I think that people have a fear. And once they feel like there's a choice of an either or, but if there's a midway and then that they can keep on moving the needle towards a more ethical life, then that will be achieved. There's also that question that people always bring to their defense that if we stopped, you know, the the raising of animals for, the, for their protein, whether, what would happen to those animals? There is a, what what will we do with them? Well, they wouldn't exist is the short answer to that because these animals are being bred because there's a market for them. And if the market falls away, the the breeding will fall away or the hatching and, you know, in case of, of, of chickens. So it's not as if, you know, there is an issue of what we will do with them. They will 
as, as you said yourself a little while ago, it's not going to happen overnight. There's going to be a gradual reduction in, in consumption of animal products, I hope. And the markets will respond. Markets don't produce products when there's no demand for them. So, you know, they, they will only exist in small numbers. Maybe people will like to keep a few chickens or have a cow in the field because otherwise there aren't any. But it's rather like the, the, the draft horses, right? The, the big heavy horses that used to pull wagons. Once the internal combustion engine took over, it's not as if we then had vast numbers of draft horses that people you know, had to look after. A few, pe- a few people did make sure that the breeds still exist, that they didn't die out altogether. But, but basically, people stopped breeding them. rising sophomore at Scripps College double majoring in environmental science and media studies. I am also a collaborating podcaster with the One Planet podcast. As I listen to Peter Singer speak about his journey towards recognizing and making change in the world of animal rights, I can't help but notice that my awakening to this issue was fairly similar to his. Growing up, I never paid particular attention to my diet or the fact that I was eating meat. It wasn't until I joined my colleagues from a local environmental grassroots organization that I began to notice and ask questions about their dietary choices. I was fortunate enough to have met peers who embraced all steps towards change and who supported each other in gaining awareness of individual choices that could be made to reduce environmental impacts. Their dietary choices were flexible, and they adjusted what they chose to eat based on what was available to them. Dr. Singer speaks to this as well, pointing to the fact that he didn't change his diet in a single day. For him, making change was a matter of mindfulness and considering the bigger picture, or, as he puts it, asking oneself, am I supporting in any significant way the industries that exploit these animals? I find this approach important in the development of a sustainable diet. It's also realistic. For many of us, Meat and other animal products have been consistent factors in our daily diets. Since we are removed from the environments and processes that bring these goods to our plates, oftentimes we are not conscious of the conditions that farmed animals undergo. Instead, we simply think of the corporations as the people who put brightly colored packaging on our grocery store shelves and we remove the idea of the animal from the goods we consume. With this in mind, I am drawn to one of the words Dr. Singer uses, altruism. Because the fact of the matter is, a form of altruism is intrinsically related to the way we as a human race take steps towards making sustainable change. As Dr. Singer says, thinking about making the world a better place should be one of our objectives for everybody. As we take personal steps to reduce the impacts of the climate catastrophe, we are also benefiting people around the world who may be impacted by these changes. The more people who begin to take steps, no matter how large or small they may be, the greater contribution there is towards the greater good for our planet. And, as Dr. Singer points out, our diets can play a large role in that indirect altruism. So, what is it that we can do to take those small steps? In answering this question, Dr. Singer's thoughts on mindfulness intersect his points on how we, as consumers, influence the market. It is important that we sit and reflect on our dietary choices going forward. 
there are many things to consider from many different perspectives. Consider the ethics of animal treatment, the scientific evidence of bioaccumulation in meat products, the environmental consequences of meat farming, and more. Dr. Singer leads by example, showing us that while you can, it isn't necessary to make drastic changes in your diet right away. Everybody's path to a sustainable diet looks different, and it's important to respect and support each one. So, while each of us takes that first step, we can look ahead and prepare ourselves for the next. Just like how Dr. Singer first began to ponder this issue, maybe the best thing we can do is tap into our own curiosity. Just ask, why? And then, what's next? Now, back to the interview. Yes. Well, I I look forward to that future. I in the meantime, I feel we have to create as many, you know, help the market along or be vocal because, of course, they need market indications in order to do that as well. And so, in terms of what is on your, I know that you have forthcoming uh, books of your conversations around uh, Buddhism. Tell me a little bit about that project. Yes, that's an interesting project and a bit of a, a departure for me. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a conference in Taiwan, organized by something called the Life Conservation Association, which I didn't know very much about, but I'd never been to Taiwan. I thought this will be an interesting opportunity. And it turned out that the conference was organized by a female Buddhist monastic, Shi Chao Wei. And I was very impressed with her. I was impressed with her commitment to animals, but I was also impressed with her intellect and the interesting discussions we had, not only about animals, but on one of the one occasion we were traveling to another town in in Taiwan on the train, and we sat next to each other and explored a little bit uh, about Buddhist ethics. I discovered that she'd written a book called Buddhist Normative Ethics, and as I was interested in ethics of I was interested in in that. And there are parallels between Buddhist ethics and the utilitarian ethics that I hold. So we started to discuss that. And she actually showed me a little book that she'd written with a German Roman Catholic priest, which was a dialogue between a Catholic and a Buddhist. And she gave me a copy of that. It was in German, but I I read German. And so I I said, well, you know, maybe we could do a dialogue uh, like this. And in fact, I think the parallels are closer than parallels between Buddhist ethics and secular utilitarian ethics, I I believe, are closer than the parallels between Buddhist ethics and Roman Catholic ethics. So we developed a plan. She brought me back to another conference. And after the conference, we had two or three days at a meditation center on a mountaintop in Taiwan, and we recorded the conversation. And then we decided it wasn't quite enough that we'd recorded after I'd gone back. We had to, we wanted to elaborate on some of these topics. So we've been doing that over email for some years now, but it's getting very close to being finished and I hope it will be published next year. And it will be published, by the way, both in Taiwan, in Chinese and, and in English. And you've also just started, or recently, the Journal of Controversial Ideas. And this is intriguing to me. Uh, and staying on that 
subject of China, Taiwan. Sometimes in this environmental conversation, we feel like things will happen too slowly. And some people posit that to get the change we need, you might have to go through to authoritarian decisions just it's it's not mm. popular i mean i'm in favor of democracy but sometimes they say well we won't be able to move quickly enough well yes i think i feel like you i i can understand this line of thought because it does seem at the moment that democracies are not moving quickly enough um, although i should say I'm a bit encouraged by the events. In fact, I'm quite a lot encouraged by the events of the past year. I mean, the, the, the years of the Trump presidency were incredibly discouraging and dispiriting. And it seemed obvious then that we were not going to make decisions quickly enough. But, but Biden has, is acting much more seriously about climate change than we, other leaders had done. And I'm hopeful that maybe the pace will quicken now. But still, there is a question about whether democracies will be ready to do this. But to those who say, well, <clears throat> democracy can't do this, so we need something else, I would say, well, how do you know that the something else you get will actually be good on climate change? Because if we abandon democracy, we may lose control over what kind of government we have. We then maybe have the government of those who can have the most the strongest military behind them. And there's no guarantee that they are going to think in a sound way about preventing climate change. So <clears throat> I'm still a Democrat, despite the fact that I lament the, the difficulties of getting strong action for the long-term future in a democratic system. I agree. I mean, I, I don't think... I could never abandon that. I think that people uh, point to some um, successes that China has made in terms of moving things quickly or, you know, the desertification of areas and then they've been able to green it in a period that has not been comparable or hasn't been done elsewhere. But that doesn't mean all the solutions are correct. But uh, yes, I'm very hardened about this and even the recent decision in, in Germany after the, the high court saying that yes, in climate security is a human right. You know, mm. these young plaintiffs taking the German, going to the German high court. Th these are all wonderful developments. But yes, I hope it never does come to that. And so why did you found the Journal of Controversial Ideas? I founded it together with my co-editors, Francesca Minerva and Jeff McMahon, because all three of us were concerned about the narrowing of acceptable fields for discussion and debate, or acceptable views to put forward in debate. In philosophy particularly, we were all philosophers, but also more broadly, we'd seen it in other areas ourselves. Uh, we'd seen people who were being abused and harassed for putting forward quite good arguments, but arguments for politically unpopular views. And we were seeing people whose careers had been seriously, perhaps irreparably damaged for putting forward unpopular positions. And we, all three of us, believe in the importance of freedom of thought and discussion and free expression. We think that we're likely to have better outcomes if we know the truth. And we think that free discussion is a way to having discovering what the truth is and, and having more people understand that. So there were a number of incidents that troubled us, uh, cases of people who were 
being abused and harassed. Francesca herself had death threats after she published an article on abortion and, and infanticide. I've had threats in the past too, going back rather further, but I've also been blocked from speaking in, in Germany, in fact, and in the other German-speaking countries of Europe, and also had death threats in the United States because of my views about abortion and euthanasia. And and we've seen other people, including young, untenured academics, being intimidated and, and not feeling able to publish views that they thought were right. So the idea behind the Journal of Controversial Ideas is that, firstly, it is an academic journal. It is going to be peer-reviewed. All our articles go out to experts in the field and get uh, anonymously reviewed by them. But if they are approved, in contrast to other academic journals, we will allow them to be published under a pseudonym so that nobody knows the author's name and the authors need not fear either personal harassment nor threats nor career damage. Yes, this, it's at the forefront of my mind, too, about the free speech. And I know that I think that it's a wonderful service and platform you're doing with your journal. I know that some who've had their careers affected. I was speaking with Ian Baruma and then also on the mm-hmm. not her career wasn't affected, but just with Jung Chang, who was recalling you know, her memories of the Cultural Revolution. And so... I think that, you know, comparisons have been made now with cancel culture, that it's like that. I don't, I think maybe that's a too easy of a comparison, but it's certainly a warning for the way things can go when you have a kind of uh, mass and uh, mob thinking. Right. Yes. I mean, in the countries that we're living in, you're not going to get sent to a re-education camp, but, but your career may be seriously damaged for putting forward ideas for which you have strong arguments and good evidence. And that's not a good thing in any society, I believe. And you're speaking to us now from Australia. What is what is the view from there on these subjects that you've been discussing? I know that you, you teach at Princeton normally. but Yes, yeah. I teach at Princeton, but I am Australian. I have family in Australia, children and grandchildren. And uh, my wife and I want to spend time in Australia each year. So that's why I'm here. So I'm only half time at Princeton. I only teach at Princeton in the in the fall semester. So the view from Australia, I think, is you know, is in terms of what we we're just talking about, cancel culture, it's less of a problem than it is in the United States or or the UK and some other parts of Europe. But you know, it, it's there all the same. It's there to a lesser degree, and you know, we we are influenced clearly by what happens in other countries. So that's part of it. I think on climate change, we have a government that is been very slow and doing something. I think you know, when, as a, when Trump was in office, they could say, well, you know, we're doing more than the United States, but that was a very low standard. Now they can't say they're doing as much as the United States. And they can't say the Australian prime minister was involved in the, in the conference that Biden called. But, but really, I think we are being shamed by not having set firm targets for when we're going to cut emissions by what amount and when we're going to reach uh, uh, net zero emissions. Yes, that's true. I believe the International Environment Agency has just said that if we, has declared that if there is 
we have to have no new developments of oil, gas or coal to be carried out if we're to reach net zero by 2050. So I think that we all have to be very bold. I am hardened by some of those decisions in, in, in Germany recently. And I just had an uh, interview with Hans-Josef Fell of the Energy Watch Group and he lives the life. So that's, it's always lovely to speak to people who live the life. And he says it's possible. I mean, I don't know if this is so ambitious, but he says it's possible to, with following through certain feed-in tariffs to reach 100% renewable energy in a decade. I mean, I think that might be a little optimistic, but if you believe so, if we follow certain plans, he thinks it's mm. possible. Well, certainly we've made rapid technological progress. This has been one of the great things that has given me some hope that uh, the technology for producing clean energy has advanced so rapidly and Again, I think we can, we can at least in part, thank China for that, although, of course, a lot of other research went into it. But you know, this means now that I, I don't think anybody, you know, purely for economic reasons, I don't think people would really start a new coal power plant because uh, we now have the technology to produce the electricity more cheaply uh, in clean ways. So that's a big breakthrough. And we're starting to see a lot more electric cars. And as you know, a lot of countries and some major car companies have said, I think Volkswagen was one of them, wasn't it? That it would go completely electric. I don't remember the, the date, but I think those are really important changes. The problems that remain, perhaps the biggest problem that remains is what we were talking about before, and that's meat, uh, particularly red meat, because we really need to get people away from red meat if we're going to achieve global net zero emissions by 2050 even, let alone in a decade. Uh, and if meat consumption just keeps going up, without any changes in the emissions per per cow, let's say, we're not going to get there. Yeah, I, people don't, re I mean, I think the informed people are beginning to realize, but just how strong and how potent and then methane emissions are. So you think it's just you have to eat to survive, but it's uh, our present is killing our future. I, I think if, if we can be uh, vocal and spread ways and help encourage alternatives that will change this mindset, it's it's, it's not quite as stagnant as it used to be. So I, I am very hopeful about that. And I want to, I guess, I'm, just in closing, I mean, you've done so much. You've really changed, you know, a, a generation's, you know, approach or you, you've helped really mainstream a lot of, as you said, when you came to the UK, you didn't, you know, this philosophy of being a, a vegetarian or being a vegan, it just wasn't popular. And now so many have been exposed to your, your writings. It's, it's really changed a lot. And, and you have great popular support. I see, you know, from endorsements, of course, from the Gates Foundation or from celebrities or singers like Paul Simon and this, that it's, it helps popularize this. So I hope to, to see more of that. I'm just wondering in your classes, you teach biomedical, biomedical ethics at Princeton. I'm a prof professor of bioethics and I do teach bioethics or biomedical ethics, but it's, it's not the only thing I teach. I, I teach ethics more broadly. So I do teach about uh, the ethics of our treatment of animals. I treat teach about life and death decisions in, in healthcare, but I te teach about global poverty and climate change and a whole range of, of applied ethical questions. And so what are some of the things that you hope or that you make sure to impart to your students or to your children, grandchildren on these subjects? I mean, what do they, what do, what do they come out of your classes with? Well, 
you know, different students come away with different things because some of them are more committed to really thinking deeply about issues and also some of them care more about uh, the planet, about animals, about other people. And some of them just want to get a decent grade and go on to whatever they're doing in their career. But certainly each year, a number of students do come away having changed their lives as a result of my courses in various ways. Some of them changing their lives in terms of what they eat. Some of them resolving to give away more money and some of them changing their careers, trying to find a career in which they can do as much good as they can. And that's always very rewarding when you think that ideas have the power to change people's lives in lasting and, and fundamental ways. And as you think to the future and education and the all these models, these systems that we need to change, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I would like young people to recognize that they're part of a long tradition that has been trying to make the world a better place, uh, a tradition that goes back as far as you know we have recorded history, that there are people who tried to, as I said, like Socrates, say, but also like Buddha and many other figures in different cultures, who tried to think more about how we ought to live and tried to live in accordance with their thinking, tried to do good in the world, and that that's a tradition that they can be part of, and that it's you know, this generation really does hold the future of the planet in its hands because if we make the wrong decisions now, we might get into irreversible climate change feedback, feedback that eventually makes the planet hotter and hotter until most or all of it becomes uninhabitable. So I think it's tremendously important that people think not just about the here and now, but about others who are not present either geographically distant or distant because they're in generations yet to come. Well, that's such an important message and it's been your life work. So I want to thank you, Peter Singer, for your dedication to making this world a better place for all living beings, for your important contributions to ethics and moral philosophy, and for your books and initiatives that have inspired millions to change their lives. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you, Mayor. I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to speak to your listeners. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Ellen Hu. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.